right, as I mentioned earlier, um, I am running low on the fuel that I need to do the things that I'm supposed to do. And um, so today we're, we're going to reach into whatever measure of strength that God supplies uh, to survive, okay? He gives much grace. We, as we're walking through Zephaniah, we are discovering this book that is emphatically driven toward the day of the Lord. Very brief, very pointed, not a lot of explanation, but it is a, an urgent warning. It's an urgent warning to all those who uh, do not know God, those who do not, do not obey the gospel, it's a warning to all those, but it's also a warning to the people of God because they were really walking in the rebellion that all the nations were walking in as well. And so the warning for the day of the Lord is it's, it's very applicable to the people of God because if he's going to do this in the end to all who disobey him, who do not believe on Jesus then we ought to immediately examine ourselves, as Paul says, really to see if we are in the faith. I'm convinced, and I've been taught most of my adult life and in ministry and in seminary, that we live in a land where multitudes of people professing to be Christians have duped themselves. They have deceived themselves. They profess Christ. They have the, uh, what I may say is a, a false assurance of heaven, and yet nothing about their lives has changed. We heard it last week. I'm so thankful for Pastor Phil. I call him Pastor Phil. I don't, want to say, I don't like saying Dr. Phil because, you know, Dr. Phil. Um, but now I can't call him Pastor Phil because he's not a pastor anymore. So I suppose I need to stick with Dr. Newton. As Dr. Newton, or I'll call him Phil in person, but I want to address him properly. Dr. Newton last week gave us just such a clear exposition of Peter's writings on those very matters. Why we are a Baptist church, because we believe that to be a part of the church, to be in the people of God, one must be regenerate. One must actually be saved. And that's why we do our best. We mess up. It's never going to be perfect. But we do our best to guard that for the sake of the church so that we better reflect the coming kingdom. A lot of people are duped, though. These people in Jerusalem, these people in Judah were duped. They were deceived. And so these messages come about the day of the Lord for them to examine themselves and ultimately to repent. What was happening is under the surface, the surface looked real good. Everybody was showing up for church, you know, so to speak. Everybody looked like everything was in order. They kept their sins on the, the down low. They kept those evil practices that were under the surface. They kept them under the surface for this time. But God knew what was going on in their hearts. And he knew that that, that rebel that's inside of them, that rebel that's inside of you, he knew that rebel was, was, was growing. And so in his good pleasure, in his sovereign 
action, his providence, they would face the invasion of Babylon. Again, this pairs well with Jeremiah. We quickly can draw on the things that we learned from Jeremiah as we walk through this text. And so today, we're going to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Zephaniah has addressed all the nations, but he now addresses the judgment that is going to come against the people of God should they not repent. Let's read together Zephaniah 3, 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their, their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one can walk in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a, a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more... They were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Let's pray. Father, we ask again for your grace as we dive into your word. And um, Father, in all of my shortcomings, please make clear what you wish to say to your people. Holy Spirit, give us help in understanding. God, be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have serious warnings here for those who claim to know God. Serious warnings for those who claim to know Jesus, yet continue in rebellion, obstinate against God, stiff-necked, and hard-hearted. The text today tells us the warning of rebellion's judgment paves the way to repentance. That's our theme. The warning of rebellion's judgment paves the way to repentance. Repentance, And we're going to walk through uh, four characteristics of these people who were in rebellion. And I would say these characteristics are going to describe any of us when we're in rebellion. Four characteristics. First off, from verses 1 and 2, they are committed to folly. They are committed to folly. The word here begins with woe. And you recall, woe was one of the words... That was used for the nations. And there's a, there's a recurring theme throughout this letter 
that if you do not respond, people of God, if you do not respond to God's call to repentance, you're going to get the same sort of judgment that the nations are getting. You're just going to be another one on that list. And so he pronounces this woe. Verse 1 addresses various aspects of who these people are and who we are. It addresses their relationship to God, their relationship with themselves, and their relationship with others, Matyar says. Verse 1, you see it. Rebellious, this is against God. Defiled, you've done this to yourself. The oppressing city, here's how it manifests in your midst, how you sin against one another. The commentators compare Jerusalem in this text to Nineveh. Do you remember what God said about Nineveh? Nineveh is a city of blood. You know, Jonah didn't want to go preach there because he thought these people are so evil they don't deserve anything from God. You know what God does to the prophet Zephaniah? He says, hey, you're just like they are. You're the city of oppression. This is how people know you. This is what you've become in your rebellion. And you remember, rebellion characterizes the people of God throughout history at various times. Think about in the wilderness. In the wilderness, what what did they do? God provided. God saved them. And in the wilderness, they said, no, we don't want this to be happening to us. We don't want God's will. We want to go back to Egypt. In their rebellion... They said, it's better to be slaves than to trust God. This is what was happening here. Again, they had become defiled. In this case, it's injustice that characterized them, manifesting itself in oppression. These are actions against the weakest members of society, neglecting or using the poor for personal gain. You could put in uh, widows, orphans, sojourners, people who were easily on the very edges of society. This is what was going on. This is at the center of God's charges against Judah and Jerusalem. And you notice here, as as we walk through these, uh, rebellion, uh, rebellion, being defiled, and then oppressing. There is a progression here, as Barker and Bailey note. These words indicate a progression. You begin by rebelling against God. That rebellion leads to a defiling of your own person. And in a big group, it defiles us. Then it manifests itself in sin against one another. So rebellion, then we're defiled, then we sin against one another. It's that progression. What, what would we say about oppression in our context? I know your, your first reaction is to think, okay, Israel or Judah, America. But that's really a secondary application that we could make in, in regard to oppression. We want to first make the application among the people of God. We want to first make the application as the church of God. Because we are not going to see anything change in our broader society if we can't get it right within our four walls, so to speak. 
So how does oppression manifest in the people of God? I don't know that any of us could say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm poor. There are some of us, we do have widows. I don't think we have any orphans here. But we do have those who could easily be on the margins for various reasons. And you know, the danger still exists of using, exploiting other people's weaknesses for our own personal good. Maybe the Holy Spirit will help in some of that application. But we want to be careful that we're not looking to the weakest members within the Christian faith, within the local church, looking at their weaknesses and seeing those as things that we can utilize for our agendas or our personal gain. Matyar says here, a true society arises from committed obedience, not rebellion, and from personal holiness, not defilement. So we need to be proactively cultivating a relationship with God and seeing the fruit of that personally, individually, before we start to show that love and care for one another, not sinning against one another. Really, Matyar says, anything else aside from this, if we try to correct everybody's behavior and reverse all the sins against one another, he says it's like putting the cart before the horse. And that's what so many Christians try to do. It's get rid of the sin, get rid of the sin. But meanwhile, we're not, we're not cultivating that relationship with God. We're not guarding ourselves against being defiled in rebellion. That's what we do when we go out into the world, too. We, we skip preaching the gospel, and we go to things like changing laws. But again, we know obedience comes from the heart. And so when we preach the gospel, we're looking for that heart change. There's a couple of things that are happening when people are committed to folly. A couple of things going on here. They're deaf to wisdom. They're deaf to wisdom. Do you see verse 2? She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. Deaf to wisdom. Won't listen, won't take correction. When we've committed ourselves to doing wrong, we develop quickly a hearing problem. Proverbs. <laughs> listen to the Proverbs 1.7. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 3.11, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Proverbs 1, 2 and 3, to know wisdom and instruction. This is the purpose of his writing, he says, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. People who are committed to folly are deaf to wisdom. You know what happens? At first, it's, it's, a, it's a separation from good counsel. What happens is those people who used to, to guide you, who used to 
to give you that counsel, who showed you wisdom, when you commit yourself to folly, you begin to, you begin to not seek their counsel. You seek it a little less and a little less and a little less. To the point where if they come and offer their counsel to you, your response is, and if you don't say it, you feel it, you can't tell me what to do. Folks, as a pastor, you don't know how many times, you don't know how many times that I've had to walk through that. Because somehow, in rebellion, people think it's okay to place themselves on the throne that only God should sit on. And when he, in his grace, brings wise counsel to people who are committed to folly, they refuse wisdom. They are deaf to wisdom. Here's the thing, though. It says they listen to no, she listens to no voice. This doesn't mean she's not listening to anybody. This clearly means wise counsel. Not listening to wise counsel. But folks, you need to recognize somebody has your ear. You're listening to somebody. You need to be careful. Who has your ear? I would tell you that you need to surround yourself with the word of God the wisdom of God, the people of God to tell you the word of God and the wisdom of God, which ultimately is Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians one twenty four, he is the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. So all the counsel you receive ought to point you to him. Deaf to wisdom, this is what happens to people who are committed to folly. They don't listen to wisdom. Secondly, They become dependent on self. The word says right there, she does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. This trust is to find hope and security and confidence. You know, we are so quick to forget how God has saved us and sustained us and comforted us and protected us and built us up and grown us. And when the problems come, you don't remember those things because you're not practicing remembering those things. Slowly, God is pushed from the center of all things, from that throne, and even removed completely from your story, from our story as a people. And as we know, who's ready and waiting to seat themselves on that throne of control? We are. When trust in God diminishes, self-reliance and self-dependence rule the day. They're deaf to wisdom. They depend on self. But you notice here in this dependence, it it produces this, this, uh, this not drawing near to God. When we're caught in sin, it's not our automatic response to run to God. You and I both know that when there's that feeling of guilt to that feeling of shame. Somehow we reason, we reason 
that it's better to just keep covering that up. You make one shameful decision and then it follows, is followed by another decision that you don't want to talk about, you don't want people to know about. We hide like our parents did in the garden. Hiding, however, will breed more sin. It will enable more rebellion. And then depending on yourself in that condition, you assume that your thoughts are clear, reasonable, level-headed, and your actions towards self-preservation only carry you further away from God as well as his people. And when an entire people is walking this way, the thought of drawing near to God is not on the radar. This is what happens when you're committed to folly, deaf to wisdom, dependent on self. Secondly, verses 3 through 5, another characteristic Contrary to God's character. I never know when to say contrary or contrary, but I'm saying contrary here. Contrary to God's character. You see verses 3 through 5. There's a couple of, couple of notes I want you to make here. First off, injustice destroys the people. Injustice destroys the people. You see in verse 3 and verse 4, the officials, the judges, the prophets, the priests, all these people who are supposed to be trustworthy among the people of God. These leaders who they, they thought they could look to, they thought they could trust, and they were trusting. They were trusting them. Unfortunately, they were leading them the wrong way. These people who should be able to be trusted could not be trusted. And Zephaniah exposes them for what they are. First off, he mentions a couple of groups here that are civil leaders, and he paints the picture here. The officials, you got the judges, okay? Civil leaders, there's metaphors right here. First off, he says the officials are like lions taking their prey. This is how they operate among the people of God. Lions taking their prey. Then you got the judges who are evening wolves. They're hungry. They're hunting for the next meal and they're ravenously eating everything down to the bone and leaving nothing for the morning. This is the picture of the leaders here. But we also see religious leaders, the prophets and the priests. You know what they were doing? He says right here, they're going to do whatever advances their own agenda. They're fickle treacherous men and their priests profane what is holy they do violence to the law of God oftentimes as we learn from Jeremiah the prophets would 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 pass off their own clever ideas as the word of God and you remember when God spoke through Jeremiah he was like hey these people are talking I didn't tell them to talk Jeremiah 23, 32, Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. They were called to do something and they would not do it. 
They failed to do it. Priests likewise failed in their tasks. They profaned what is holy and attacked God's law. It says it did violence to God's law. You may recall some of the priests in the Old Testament not only welcoming pagan practices, which led them not to teach the people holiness and reverence before God, but much like Eli's sons who would lay with women as they came in to worship the Lord. Outright breaking God's law became a norm in their daily routines. And I think about what Eli's sons looked like publicly. Oh man, they're priests of God. They're esteemed. They're holy. And yet this is what they were doing under the surface. When the priests are breaking God's law, then you might understand why they neglected their responsibility to teach the law to the people. Folks, there's going to be a close relationship between false teachers and personal defilement. We have seen this. Injustice destroys the people. This is how the leaders operated. But we also see right here, justice restores the people. Justice restores the people. Verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail but the unjust knows no shame. So to go back to the picture, while the rebellious ones leave nothing for the morning, each morning God shows his justice. Each morning God's mercies are new. Each morning God's grace is rich and abundant. Each morning he shows forth his faithfulness. Each morning, he shows you his goodness. I want you to notice something here. This statement is such an odd statement for us on this side of the New Testament writings. The Lord within her is righteous. The Lord within her is righteous. We look at this and we recognize that the Lord dwelled amid his people. He lived among his people. His presence was with his people in the city, in Jerusalem. But now, you know how we can guard against what is Profane. You know how we can guard against doing violence to the law of God? You know how we can guard against oppression? We have the Lord within us. Now, not only is the Lord in the midst of his people, he is indwelling his people. Believer, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you 
is always ready to show you that new morning mercy, always ready to point you to grace, to bring you to conviction and repentance, to confess your sin and know that it's good for you to have confidence in Christ, to know that God's will is secure. This is the Holy Spirit's work in you to manifest love, justice among the people. Justice restores the people. When we turn to God, he will keep us He will sanctify us. He will make us act in righteous ways toward one another. Justice restores the people. So we see this rebellious people was committed to folly. They were contrary to God's character. Thirdly, verses 6 and 7, they were callous to grace. Callous to grace. Verses 6 and 7 show an example that God gives and then shows us the patience of God, his desire for us. We note this in a couple of ways. First, God graciously gives examples. And you remember from the previous chapter, north, south, east, and west, God shows what rebellion against him brings. You know, God's given us these examples. He's given us the Bible the history of the people of God, these examples to correct us. Individually, you know that God has given you examples of people who walk the way of the world and then reap the consequences. And as an audience to the story that's played out before your eyes, you should have learned your lesson. But there are many times when the lesson doesn't find its way into our hearts. And as a community... Many times we watch the, the story unfold. We, we watch the story of the Bible unfold week after week. The examples unfold week after week, example after example. We look through history and we've watched whole societies fall because of their rebellion against God. Furthermore, we can probably point to other local churches who devour themselves because of rebellion. And their lampstand is taken away. The Holy Spirit no longer dwells there. That's what Revelation tells us. Now that sounds terrifying, but my point here is that God graciously gives these examples. It is evidence of his grace that he would give you those examples. God shows his grace through these warnings And so I would ask you, what is God warning you about right now? What is he warning you about right now? And will you listen? Will you listen? Or will you not listen to any voice? Will you reject his wisdom? Your actions right now may be revealing the fruit of rebellion. Maybe not outwardly yet. Maybe, maybe you still look good on the outside, but if you're honest, there is that welling up of a rebel nature and God is warning you. He's given you these examples according to his grace. And then 
Here's what he does. He graciously awaits repentance. God graciously awaits repentance. I said, verse 7, Surely you will fear me and you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Here's God's position in the matter. I know amid all the judgment, you're like, this, this is too much. God is too angry. It's terrifying. But here's his expectation that we respond. You see his desire gushing through his words, tenderness and compassion and patience flowing from his unmatched character. Surely you will fear me. Surely you will accept correction. You know, fear is that reverence that is due to God. It's not fright, but it's recognition of honor and that weighty glory. And when you, when you encounter God in that way, it changes you and it changes your direction. It restores you to his ways and his will. And yet these people, they were committed. They were committed to their folly. And as he says right here, all their deeds, they were committed to making all their deeds corrupt. Committed to folly, contrary to God's character. They were callous to grace. And then fourthly, verse 8, another characteristic we could say consumed by God. Consumed by God. It's a terrifying thing to those who only solidify their rebellion. However, as commentators note, and I hope you can see, for those that do respond in repentance, this is a hopeful verse. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. If you're unbelieving today, therefore, wait for me, oh, you ought to tremble. If you're a believer today, if you're living in that lifestyle of repentance that we we talk about often, if you're living in that repentance, then wait for me is a hopeful word. Commentators note the change in language, which matches the language of the beginning of chapter 2. And you may recall those he speaks to that are humble in the land, those who will seek the Lord, they will be spared. They will be the remnant. They will be preserved. And here's what's happening. So while God is waiting patiently, patiently on those who need to repent, those who do repent are now instructed to wait on God. The day of the Lord for the believing will be a day of resolution, a day of vindication, and we wait for this day with great anticipation. He says right there, at the end, and we're coming to our conclusion. He says right there in the end, after announcing once again his decision to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out his burning anger, his indignation, he says, 
In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. The the phrase, jealous God, is something very meaningful to Christians. We worship a jealous God. And I'm so thankful that he is a jealous God. Kirk Wellam writes this of God's jealousy. He says, The jealousy of God is his holy commitment to his honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in the salvation of his people and the just condemnation of all who stand in opposition to him. You see what God's jealousy does? His his jealousy keeps his relationship with his people intact. And it also gives hope to all the nations that they may enter in to covenant relationship with him. You see, it's about his glory. His glory is his and he cannot give it to another. Do you understand? If God were to ascribe any of his glory to something or someone else, he would be committing sin. His holiness makes him react to anything that contradicts it, making him jealous for what is good and right. And then his love. His love, just like a husband is jealous for the love of his wife, so the Lord is jealous for the love of his covenant people. We serve a jealous God. He longs to know you. He longs to have your worship. People of God, is there a lack of repentance that keeps you separated from him? Today, let these pronouncements of judgment pave that way to repentance for you. I know we are variously dealing with different circumstances and that repentance may look different for each one of us. Don't know your situations. But today, please, listen to the voice of God. Listen to the word of God. Hear the wisdom of God in Christ and respond. Believer, you have the righteousness of God through Jesus. He's given you his spirit. He laid down his life after living a perfect life. He rose from the dead to make sure that through faith you would be counted righteous, justified in the sight of God. And we talk about the justice of God. The justice of God. So where do we find that justice of God in the gospel? Where do we find that? It seems so unjust to let sinners be saved. But in order to maintain his justice so that he could be both just and the justifier, he put his son on the cross 
the sinless for the sinner. He put his son on the cross to bring you to salvation. The sinner given righteousness. Would you believe on Jesus today so you will have that righteousness, so you will have the Holy Spirit always pointing you, always available to you, always showing you Jesus, always showing you the way out. I know there's somebody who needs a way out this morning. You need a way out, and the Holy Spirit is showing that to you. Respond to him. Hear his voice. Let's pray, and then we'll respond. I'll be down front if you want to counsel with me, pray with me, whatever the need be. Father, we love you. We thank you once again for your, your word. Father, the sobering reminders of your judgment. And Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to bring that word to mind, to remind us of the things you have promised, to show us wisdom, to show us truth. Father, we pray the Holy Spirit this morning would break those that are in bondage to sin free. Father, give them ears to hear. Give them insight to understand the wisdom who is Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If y'all would, go ahead and stand with me again as we respond in singing Jesus paid it off.